You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. You'll find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Page 774 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. You know, false prophets have always been claiming to predict events in the future. One such pretender was named Nostradamus, a French physician and astrologer. He is best known for his book, Les Prophetes, in which he allegedly predicts the future. People claim, to the surprise of many, that some of his predictions have come to pass. The French Revolution, for example, or the World War II and Hitler, or the atomic bomb, or even the attacks of 9-11. But you see, his predictions are so vague that they could actually be applied to all kinds of events without fear of misapplying them. If a false prophet gets some things right, it's not because the Lord has revealed it. As the saying goes, even a blind squirrel sometimes finds a nut. It's important to remember that false prophets do not get all things right. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 18, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. But you see, true prophets never miss. They never make a mistake. They're always right. Their predictions cannot err because of the infallibility of God's word, which we read about in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So that which Jonah received from heaven was the very word of God. The God of truth would speak to and through this son of Amittai, and he would do so in order to illustrate the benevolent love that he has for mankind. And he would show a readiness to forgive even the heathen if they repent and believe. Striking. This is a wonderful little Old Testament book. The prophet Jonah is from the little village of Gath-Hefer in the region of Zebulun. It's a village situated about three miles northeast of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And Jonah lived between the revolt of the ten tribes in 975 B.C., and Israel's captivity in 722 B.C. That's when he lived and ministered, sometime in that period. And he ministered in the northern kingdom during the long 41-year reign of King Jeroboam II. 
God sent Jonah during a time when we would expect severe judgment upon the apostates. The rulers of Israel had forsaken the Lord. They were guilty of the grossest idolatry. But the Lord was slow to anger, and he was gracious in forbearing with his disobedient people. And outside of this Old Testament book, which bears his name, there is very little known about Jonah. Oh, Jesus mentions him to the scribes and Pharisees who were seeking signs. You remember the passage. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Other than that, in the book of Jonah, we have only one other mention. It can be found in the text that Elder Jim read this morning in 2 Kings 14. And that Old Testament passage tells us of Jeroboam's rise to power as the king of Israel. It refers to his brilliant military achievements under the blessing of Yahweh. And of all the kings of the northern kingdom, this Jeroboam reigned the longest. And although it was long, his lengthy reign was neither righteous nor was it godly. Like his predecessors, Jeroboam II did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this ungodly and idolatrous king did not depart from the sins of his forefathers. He continued the idol worship and gave little thought to any reform. Pragmatically, I suspect he thought something like this, why change? Things are going our way. The nation is prosperous, my army is victorious, my reign is long. Why rock the boat? We'll just keep up our worship of those golden calves. And herein lies what I think is one of the most dangerous effects of trying to interpret providence. Many think if things are going well materially, it must be because God is pleased. But they say if things go south and adversity descends, God must be displeased. That's a typical way of thinking. Job's friends, for example. And yet you and I both know that the wicked often prosper and the godly sometimes suffer. And here we see Jeroboam was wrong to see his material prosperity as a sign of divine favor. God was being gracious, yes, but he was not pleased with their idolatry. And today we must always interpret the word of God to understand the providence of God. And there we learn that as a loving father, God sometimes disciplines his children to train us in godliness. And that's hard. It hurts. And there we learn that as a just judge, he'll sometimes give those thankless, ungodly, wicked over to their own lusts so they can freely indulge their sin. And that's awful. Let them do what they want without restriction, just to aggravate their guilt. And so here we find Jeroboam maintaining Israel's idolatry because he thought that it was a benefit and he held to his tradition. 
This is what his fathers had done. So he continued to do the same. And many in the church follow the same course, don't they? It's a religion of our predecessors. Their beliefs and practices are received from their parents or their grandparents. And it's what we call a blind faith. They believe not on the basis of inspired scripture, but on the basis of tradition. It's what others have told me to believe. It's what others have led me to practice. I've never felt the force of truth. I've never embraced the gospel for myself. T. David Gordon, one of my previous professors, used to speak of squatters' rights to error. Have you ever heard that? Squatters' rights to error. Meaning, some people think it's right simply because they've held it for a long time. They're squatters on error. And that is to say they're familiar and comfortable with error, so that makes it right. No, our faith has to be informed. What we believe and what we do and what, why we believe it and why we do it is important. And blind faith is just that, blind. There's no careful thought, there's no consideration, but Christianity is a religion of the book. The inspired written word of God. We meet Jesus in the incredible testimony of the inspired witnesses. Because apart from their apostolic teaching, we could never know Jesus Christ. We're called to be people of the book, searching the scriptures. Psalm 82 says it this way. The ungodly have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. And sadly, that was the course that Jeroboam II followed as the king of Israel. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So he was of the same caste with his ancestor, who bore the same name. He took after his namesake, and he firmly held to the ancestral idolatry. And in so doing, he furthered the national sins of the northern kingdom. And you know something, the Bible, as you know, is unmistakably plain in its severe denunciation of this kind of sin. Psalm 106 is just one example. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Eats grass. So instead of the true living God, they worshiped the image of a grass-eating ox. It was a monstrous sin and stupidity to forsake the worship of Yahweh. He, who is all-sufficient and all-powerful, all-wise and absolutely holy, the one who upholds and maintains every creature, including the ox, it eats grass and it lives on hay, and as the Targum puts it, makes dung and defiles itself. This was the state of affairs in the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II. Materially prosperous, yes, but often oppressed from without and full of injustice within. And although it had regained the cities that had been taken away, the nation was miserable. Her people were unfaithful. Her leaders were untrue. Her future was uncertain. 
Their covenant with God was being trampled, and no wonder they were very bitter. That's what it says. They were very bitter. And in the midst of all of this was Jonah, to whom the word of the Lord had come. The faithful remnant probably expected God's wrath to be poured out at any moment. The nation was basically apostate. Any reasonable Jew would have assumed that the end was near. But as 2 Kings 14 reveals, God blessed Jeroboam so as to recover their territory. Shocking. He was given military strength and skill to restore the border of Israel. And here the nation is in defiance of the covenant, and yet God gives the people victory. What kind of a treatment is that? The faithful were waiting for the shoe to drop, and yet God gives the nation a blessing. So despite their unfaithfulness, God was being merciful and gracious. And Jonah's ministry, it turns out, was to be characterized by divine mercy and abundant grace. And this is not only to the people of Israel, but as we'll discover, also to the idolatrous pagans of Assyria. God sent him to Nineveh not as a messenger of judgment, but as an ambassador of grace. It would be a ministry not undeserved by those among whom he was announcing God's word. And I think this is going to help explain his startling behavior when he fled from the mission to Nineveh. It shows that Jonah was all too familiar with the rich mercy and forbearance of God. He knew the gracious character of his Lord. He had witnessed God's long-suffering with an apostate Jewish people. And all at once, he realized that God just might extend grace to these wicked heathen. What about holiness? Where was the judgment? Why is sin left unchecked? Those days in Israel must have been confusing to the prophet from gath Hefer, And I think Jonah shared similar sentiments to those expressed by Habakkuk. Do you remember what he said? Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I doubt anything could have prepared Jonah for the mission he was to carry out in Nineveh. This ancient Assyrian city was far more wicked than Samaria, rest assured. It was one thing, I think, to suffer long with the sin of Israel, but something else entirely to suffer long with Nineveh. Here were these ignorant, vile, idolatrous pagans groping in the dark, living in sin. They had long been the enemy of God's people, violent and wicked. And like the rest of the Gentile world, they'd been left to go their own wicked way. And everyone knew that these heathen were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were alienated people having no hope and without God in the world. And the call to minister God's mercy and grace to Nineveh was shocking and offensive. 
To the Jews, the Gentiles were objects of contempt, the pathetic heathen. Israel was the privileged and permanent custodian of God's word and grace, or so they thought. And indeed, she was privileged as the custodian, but they forgot that it was temporary, and the time would come when God's word of grace in Christ would be proclaimed throughout the entire world. And all along, God had given hints of bringing the Gentiles into the covenant. Paul says, Moses claimed, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And this is the mystery that was unknown until the coming of Jesus, that Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews in God's kingdom. So these wicked, unbelieving, undeserving Gentiles would become heirs of salvation. Absolutely stunning. And it was significant, or it was the significance of Peter's vision of that sheet. Do you remember, filled with animals? The story is told when the father of Dr. Harry Ironside was dying. Foremost in his mind was that sheet descending from heaven, which Peter saw in his vision. Over and over again, Ironside's father would mumble, a great sheet and wild beasts and, and over and over he would forget. Each time he apparently forgot the words that followed, so he'd start all over again. A great sheet and wild beasts and, and finally a friend who was visiting whispered to him, John, it says creeping things. Oh, yes, he said. That's right. That's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in. I got in, saved by grace. So here we find Jonah, commissioned to preach in Nineveh, which is called that great city. <laughs> Nineveh was at that time the greatest Gentile city on earth, perhaps something like preaching in New York City. And his mission was unique. Others declared judgment upon heathen nations, but here Jonah is called to visit this city with a message of mercy and grace. Why would the God of Israel extend mercy to such a wicked, undeserving people? And it was also confusing. What would Yahweh have to do with pagan idolaters? And it makes no sense apart from the relationship between Abraham and the Gentiles. God had called that patriarch out of Ur to Canaan and gave him this promise, among others. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was a promise of salvation in Christ to believers from among the Gentiles. <laughs> so all along, the Lord had intended to extend his grace to the Gentile world. And here we find Jonah. He's simply an Old Testament hint. He's a foreshadowing of the gospel to all nations. 850 years before Christ appeared on the scene, Jonah was pointing to the inclusion of you and me, Gentile believers. And it was shining 
a bright light in the midst of great darkness. So the book of Jonah leads you and I to consider the immeasurable grace of our God. It teaches us that according to his nature, our Lord is inclined to be gracious. It shows that he is predisposed to freely and to sovereignly extend undeserved mercy. That's who he is. Those Ninevites were awful people. They were wicked and immoral and idolatrous and cruel, but God's grace doesn't depend on the merit or the worthiness of its recipients. There's nothing in us. There is nothing done by us that is ever deserving of God's grace. We're no better than the Ninevites, to be honest with you. He extends grace simply because he is gracious. He gives mercy simply because he's rich in mercy. Paul says to Timothy, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, oh no, but because of his own purpose and grace. God's grace flows not because of who you are or because of what you have done. His grace flows freely and abundantly because of who he is and what he's done. And you and I, we're simply recipients, undeserving recipients of his abounding grace. That sacrament this morning that was sprinkled on Ruth, a sign of his undeserved grace. We've fallen short. Let's be honest, we've missed the mark. We deserve, I know it's uncomfortable and probably unpolitic, but we deserve endless punishment. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul stops at that moment, and all he can say is, by grace we've been saved. We're told that God's grace is so potent that it's invincible. It can't be thwarted. He saves sinners like wicked Ninevites. He saves sinners like David and Paul. He saves sinners like you and me. Think of it. We are by nature nothing but living dust. And through sin, we're guilty and polluted dust at that. And yet for reasons that are known only to him, he loves us and he's gracious to us. And his grace is free. Now, I mean, it's free to us, but oh, so costly to Jesus Christ. He's the one who took on human nature so that he could suffer and die in our place. Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we've noted so many times before, the incarnation itself was humbling. It required infinite condescension to go from infinity to finitude. His life was filled with suffering and sorrow. He was always called an illegitimate son. He bore the shame of that throughout his 33 years on this planet. And then he agonized in the garden, sweating great drops of blood as he anticipated the wrath of God descending upon him. And then the sins of the whole church, past, present, and future, were heaped upon him. 
and the pain of the cross and the weight of God's wrath overwhelmed his humanity such that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if he had not been a divine person, Jesus of Nazareth would have buckled under that. But for our justification, he rose from the dead and now he is exalted on high. And thus God forgives sins and he bestows on all who trust in this Christ the unimaginable blessing of eternal life. And that's grace. That is grace. He could have demanded the satisfaction from you. You might have had to pay the very last penny. And by the way, you don't have that last penny and neither do I. He provided a mediator in whom he would bestow life and salvation. And then he required faith as the condition for us to be united to this mediator. But we don't have that faith, so he gave the Holy Spirit to work in us that faith. And that's grace. And it's free, rich, abounding, and undeserved. And that's the thrust of Jonah. A book about grace to sinners who don't deserve it. The prophet's ministry to Nineveh magnifies the riches of God's grace. So this morning, let's strive to appreciate more deeply the amazing grace of our God. In Christ, he gives us the great blessing of everlasting life, and we can rejoice. Though our sins are like scarlet, he makes them white as snow. Though death is on the horizon every Sunday, man knows not his time, right? Death is on the horizon. But Jesus removed its sting and took away its victory. God's free offer of grace in Christ is made to all and to any. Simply believe. Those are the terms. Can't get any simpler than that. And when, where sin has abounded, God's grace will abound even more. In fact, the greater your sins, the greater God's glory in forgiving them. Isn't that a powerful incentive to true humility and sincere obedience? So let's respond with gladness and rejoicing to his rich, free, undeserved grace. Nothing else is like it. Nowhere else can you find it. It's in Jesus alone. And because in Christ we receive eternal life, death can't possibly hurt us. It's a promise that God made because our Savior removed its sting. This world is called a veil of tears. <laughs> It's labeled a valley of weeping. We've done funerals recently, and we know that to be true. It's a sin-cursed world filled with sorrow and strife and tragedy. But the good news of God's grace can change our entire perspective. Yes, we encounter trials. Yes, we meet troubles. Yes, we will die. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ sweetens it all. Every trial and every affliction is simply a tool in God's hand to prepare us, and he's getting us ready for the unspeakable joys of a new heaven and a new earth. That's what he's doing. 
And a hundred or so years from now, our turn on the stage of history will have come to an end. And all the difficulties and tribulations that we now endure will be a thing of the past. And we'll be basking in the glorious, exalted presence of our Savior. And that's truly amazing. Let me illustrate it by telling you another story. There was an old Indian chief, after living many years in sin, was led to Christ by a missionary. And when friends asked this old Indian chief, he tried to explain the change in his life. So reaching down, he picked up a little worm, and he placed that worm on a pile of leaves. Then, touching a match to the leaves, he watched them smolder and then burst into flames and worked their way up to the center where the worm was lying. And the old chief, he suddenly plunged his hand to the center where the worm was laying and he snatched that worm out of the burning pile. And holding the worm gently in his hand, he gave this testimony to the grace of God. Me, that worm. Are you able to rejoice this morning and be glad for the grace of God in Christ? I wonder if there's someone here who's waffling about embracing the good news. Is there any reason to hesitate? The offer is sincere. You don't have to prepare. Just believe. There's no greater news and no greater terms and no greater salvation. And in Christ, God offers you salvation and life in everlasting blessedness. May his spirit enable you and I both to accept these terms and to enjoy the blessing. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your abundant grace, which is free and sovereign and fruitful. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we see it demonstrated most clearly and supremely. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would change every heart so that everyone here or within the hearing of my voice might trust in Christ and enjoy that wonderful blessing of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.